Hey, welcome back. This is Robert Fleming of the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And I'm talking again today with my partner in podcasting as well as in the law, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. Elizabeth, welcome Hello, back. Hello, Robert. Um, we have a we have someone uh, who has has sent us a list of questions, and it's actually a pretty complicated list of questions. So, Elizabeth, what I thought maybe we'd do is talk about special needs trust today, and probably we're going to break this into several different segments. Uh, and I think because the que- it's so hard to keep track of special needs trusts, the questions don't dif- differentiate between self-settled and third-party special needs trusts. So, I thought today. We would run through uh, most of the questions and focus on third-party trusts and, and answer the questions from the perspective of a third-party trust and then do the same thing in another session about self-settled trusts. But to do that, we have to explain what the difference is between a third-party special needs trust and a self-settled special needs trust. Do you want to do the honors? Sure, Robert. So I'm going to start with the idea that somebody may be doing his or her estate plan. Let's just say it's a grandparent. And the grandparent wants to set some funds aside for, let's say, a grandchild who may have special needs, whether it is something like a disability that is known and and pretty obvious, or uh, an idea that, you know, perhaps the child may not be able to manage money down the road, given some other issues, whether they could be mental health challenges, whether they could be um, developmental disabilities, you name it. Special special needs trusts can be quite flexible in terms of how they can be applied to somebody's day-to-day. So if I'm a grandparent wanting to leave some funds aside, let's just say for my grandchild who I know has a special need, we'll do what's called a third-party special needs trust. It is the third party's money. So it is the grandparent's money in that particular case that is funding the special needs trust. And the beneficiary of that special needs trust is going to be the grandchild. And as the grandparent, because it's my money going into that trust, it's a third party special needs trust, I actually am gonna be able to decide what happens at the end of the day with the funds in that trust once my grandchild dies. So for instance, if at the time of my grandchild's death, there's still money, as the person who established this third party special needs trust, I'm able to say, maybe the rest goes to charity, or maybe the rest of the money in the special needs trust might go to siblings or other family members. The difference between that and say a first party special needs trust is with this first party special needs trust, which you refer to as a self-settled special needs trust, In that particular case, it is the individual's money, the beneficiary's money that is funding the trust. So for instance, let's just say I was walking along a train track and the train went over my foot. (laughs) Remarkably, I'm still alive. And I received some funds from that accident. Well, those would be funds that would be mine. And if I needed to fund a special needs trust in order to get Uh, become eligible for benefits, then I would be funding what's called a self-settled special needs trust. While the money in the trust would be my money that I would be putting in, part of the fact that many people need to remember with self-settled special needs trust is that at the end of the day, you must have what's called a payback provision. And that provision says when I die, 
the funds, any funds that remain in that special needs trust will be used to pay the government agency or agencies in whatever different states I lived in and received care, received benefits for the benefits that I received before the funds would be distributed to anybody else. And normally what we see is people over a lifetime, you could have millions of dollars of benefits that you receive. So there's not really money left over very often in those first party special needs trusts. So it's important for people to know is that the rules around first party or self-settled special needs trusts are governed um, by certain provisions that are just not flexible. So sometimes we have people who say, well, I'm moving to Arizona from Texas, and Texas has this crazy rule that you have to have a payback provision in a self-settled special needs trust. Does Arizona have that rule? Yes, it does. The different laws that govern, particularly the elements of the first party special needs trust, are federal law. And so when we talk today, you and I are here in Arizona, we are attorneys here in Pima County in Tucson. We're going to be talking about these trusts in Arizona, but it is important for people to remember that in many cases they may be governed by federal law. So as I said in the introduction, we're going to talk today particularly about third-party special needs trusts. And I, and I want to spool back to something you said as you were introducing the concept, and that is that the beneficiary of the third-party special needs trust doesn't even have to be disabled. They don't have to be receiving Social Security benefits or, or SSI, Supplemental Security Income benefits. Uh, you can create a special needs trust for a child that or a grandchild that you just think is special. Maybe you like the term special and, uh, and there's no magic about it. That is not true for self-settled special needs trusts. The beneficiary has to have a disability that is recognized or recognizable by the Social Security Administration. So the rest of what we talk about today, we're going to keep in mind that we're, we're going to try our level best to only answer the questions about third-party special needs trusts. It's going to be a challenge because it's so easy for us to lapse into the this and then that kind of comparison. All right, so here we go. First question that one of our listeners asks is, I set up a third-party special needs trust in Maryland or Pennsylvania or whatever. The beneficiary lives in Arizona. Does it, first of all, does an Arizona attorney like Fleming and Curdy, do we need to look at that trust before you sign it in Pennsylvania or Maryland? Well, Robert, I would say it's not a bad idea. The fact of the matter is, is that there are lots of different rules that govern the administration of a, spe of a special needs trust. And while somebody who is out of state can certainly create a very well-functioning third-party special needs trust, it is a good idea for an attorney who is in the state where the beneficiary lives to take a look because what we want to make sure is if there is a date when the beneficiary may apply for an Arizona program, for instance, Arizona long-term care, we want to make sure that we think our state agency is going to feel comfortable with that third-party special needs trust. And, and what about the flip side, Elizabeth? If you are counseling an Arizona client who wants to leave a special needs trust for their granddaughter in Maryland or Pennsylvania or Iowa, or we can pick a state, uh, do you think that you need to consult with a lawyer in that state before signing the special needs trust? I'd certainly want to have pass it by somebody. It would be well worth an hour or two consultation because the fact of the matter, Robert, is we know for families there's administrative cost and expense 
to making modifications and changes down the roads with with these trusts so yeah i would do that absolutely would recommend it and i think most of the time when we reach out to colleagues around the country and say hey would you take a look at this because we have a beneficiary who's living in your state people are happy to do the work it's it's really a more narrow scope of work if we've already drafted the trust so people listening today need to understand that it's not like you're going to be paying two attorneys to do the same work in fact, we're asking somebody to consult on some very specific issues. And I think it's worth mentioning and patting ourselves on the back a little bit, Elizabeth, that you and I are both members of the Special Needs Alliance, which is a national network of lawyers who do a lot of work in special needs planning. So we typically will have someone that we can consult who we will know well enough to, to be able to uh, lean on them to just answer a couple of questions or review a document at a probably a more modest cost than we might otherwise have to incur if we were calling up random strangers in Maryland. That's true, Robert. And our friends at the Special Needs Alliance are really wonderful people. And um, we encourage folks to, to reach out to community when they move somewhere new to connect with somebody who we know actually knows about special needs planning. So uh, we've established this special needs trust wherever we did it. Oh, let's say that it's the grandmother in Maryland who sets up the trust for the child, the grandchild in Arizona. When can she transfer money to the special needs trust? Well, Robert, you ask a great question. It depends. So if the special needs trust that she has established is part of her own revocable trust, it probably won't exist until the grandmother has died. So in that case, you can't fund it. If what we're talking about is a standalone third-party special needs trust, the grandmother would be able to fund that whenever. Um, oftentimes, we see people who want to start making gifts into a special needs trust during their lifetime opt to do a freestanding, standalone, third-party special needs trust that they can start to fund during their lifetime. And then in those cases, we'll counsel with them so that if they decide they want to name that third-party special needs trust as a beneficiary in their own estate plan, it's already in existence and running. So if you did set up a special needs trust in Maryland for a beneficiary in Arizona, oh, let's just make it more complicated. Let's say that you named your daughter in California as the trustee. What state governs the, the special needs trust, the state where it was created, Maryland, the state where the trustee lives, California, or the state where the beneficiary lives, Arizona? Oh, Robert, this is such a juicy question. So I'm going to tell you, by when my first inkling when I hear the facts, I will say that the law in the state where the beneficiary lives is what the trustee needs to be paying attention to. The terms of the special needs trust are incredibly important. There's likely a governing law provision or a CITUS provision, and that may indicate that they want the person who created the trust wants the law in the state where the beneficiary lives to be applied. If there was explicit language in the trust that said very intentional that the law in the state where the beneficiary lives should not be applied for administrative purposes. That would raise a flag for me. Uh, so I would certainly speak with the trustee about that and talk about the implications. We need to remember that the trustee has obligations and a fiduciary duty that is governed under not only the terms of the trust, but the Arizona law. And so it's, I would say, a pretty clear question that we often see people muddle 
But where the beneficiary lives is is the first answer that comes to my mind, unless there's some really funky language in the trust. Well, and I think, Elizabeth, you're answering that question for uh, for the, the effect of the distributions. But I think it's also important to recognize that if somebody wanted to sue the trustee for misbehaving, they would have to go to California. It would be a California court. And the California court might apply California law. So it is a a complicated question. Does the trust say Maryland law applies? Does the beneficiary think Arizona law applies? Does the trustee have to to live by California law? There's an, I I chose California in that fact pattern somewhat advisedly because there's a related question is who has to file an income tax return and where? And I chose a California trustee in my fact pattern precisely because California is among the more more aggressive states. And California will require that there be an income tax return filed on the imaginary trust that I just described. Even though the the money came from Maryland, the trust was drafted in Maryland, it says Maryland law applies, the only beneficiary lives in Arizona, and the only point of connection is a trustee in California. California insists on tax returns and collects tax on the income in the trust. So Robert, in your particular fact pattern, I think one thing people need to realize right away is that the terms of your trust and the person who established the trust are in Maryland. There's often a misunderstanding that that law will will govern. And I think that's one of the, the reasons we get these questions pretty often. And um, people need to be mindful that even if your intent is you're creating this great trust in the state where you live and all of the terms of the trust vibe with that particular state, whether it be Maryland or Indiana or Ohio, at the end of the day, that's probably not the law that's going to be governing the administration, whether we're talking about the trustee or we're talking about the beneficiary and distributions. Right. I just I feel compelled to make my California tax issue more complicated. I resist the temptation to make things more complicated. It's a characteristic of lawyers. But I think we need to observe that if you choose two trustees, you have two other children, say, and they are going to be co-trustees. And the trustee in Missouri is going to be the one who actually administers. But there's a co-trustee in California. Guess what? California insists on an income tax return. Even though the accounts are being administered in Missouri, the trust was from Maryland, the beneficiary is in Arizona. Just the fact of one trustee in California is going to impose an income tax requirement. Uh, There are a lot of questions that were posed to us. And and Elizabeth, I think uh, I want to do one more and then maybe we'll save the rest of the questions um, uh, for a a second podcast. And then we'll do a a third and maybe even a fourth podcast on self-settled special needs trusts later. But the other question uh, that I want to tackle today is, what is required with the IRS with my third-party special needs trust that grandma set up in Maryland that, uh, that, that has a beneficiary in Arizona, has had some money put in it, and we'll keep the trustee just a single trustee in Missouri so we don't have California's weird law, laws apply. What does the IRS require? Well, the IRS is going to want a tax ID. That's one of the things many people want to know. A TIN or an EIN is one of the first things that you're going to need to open up an account that is titled to the third-party special needs trust. So that's just a that's a threshold issue, Robert. Um, and it's going to be important uh, that you track 
the trust using that tax ID. The other thing that's important to understand is that the rules around the fiduciary income tax return, the form 1041, are really relevant here. Um, the person who created the third-party special needs trust, even if it is the grandparents' funds, they're not going to be declaring the income that has been generated by this trust on their personal return. That's often a misunderstanding that we see. So the IRS is going to want to see that trust and the tracking of income, how income is distributed. That's all going to be in, in one tax return, 1041, that is separate from the person who established the tax from the person who established the trust. Uh, and again, I, I want to resist the temptation to make this too complicated, but just observe that there are some circumstances because we haven't yet killed off grandma. We haven't said grandma in Maryland died. So it's possible that grandma is actually paying the income taxes on the earnings in the trust. But since there's a different trustee and she's not the beneficiary, it's likely that there still has to be a 1041 filed, even though grandma reports the income on her return. After grandma's death, no question about it, the 1041 that you described, Elizabeth, is going to be required for this trust. You think we're down in the weeds enough on this uh, on this special needs trust administration stuff? Yes. <laughs> uh, could, could we have made this a little simpler by saying, uh, here are the five questions that you might think about and come see us when you have a special needs trust? Because these are complicated problems. I think, Robert, what I encourage people to do is if you are a trustee who is named under the terms of a special needs trust, just make an appointment with an attorney who does special needs planning. Even if you are out of state, you're welcome to contact our office. We will try and connect you with somebody who is in the state where you live. The Special Needs Alliance has an incredible website and a wonderful way to search for attorneys who are working and in your state and who specialize in special needs planning. It's an invitation-only group. Um, so I just encourage people to you know, don't try and figure this out yourself. Please don't just sit down with your CPA and think that that it also checks all the boxes. You really should be meeting with an attorney. And understand if you call us to say, I need a special needs trust attorney in Illinois, we're going to refer you to the Illinois members of the Special Needs Alliance. So you might save a call just by going to specialneedsalliance.org. It's all spelled out, no spaces, no, no uh, uh, punctuation marks. And, um, and and there's a, a, a space there where you can look up attorneys who, who know what they're talking about in this area. And Robert, what we didn't address today, which is a question we see pretty often, is, hey, I love my brother and I'm happy to be named as trustee, but I actually don't want the work. So Fleming and Crudy, can you all be trustee of the special needs trust for my brother and can... Can you help with that? The answer is yes, but before we agree to any terms to be a trustee under a special needs trust, first of all, we have to look at it and we have to see what's going on. And, and people, I think, too often get so overwhelmed, they can't even imagine administering it themselves. So we're also here to help you. If you are a trustee of a special needs trust and you want help administering the trust, just let us know. We'll find a way to make that possible. All right, next time, third-party special needs trusts the sequel. We will talk to you then. You've been listening to me, Robert Fleming, and my partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We are two of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC, proud to be members of the Special Needs Alliance 
and, uh, and, and here to help you with your special needs planning issues. We hope to talk to you again next time. Thanks.